You are listening to a special Nears.org podcast. This Christmas year-end update is brought to you commercial-free by Cowan, where their success happens when they help you outperform. Visit them at Cowan, C-O-W-E-N.com. Registration is open for our spring 2022 conference in Baltimore, Maryland, April 6th through the 8th. For all things Nears, visit us at Nears.org. I'm Dennis Wilmot, Iron Horse Logistics Group, and representing Nears for this podcast with Tony Hatch and Jason Seidel. A lot has happened in the last year, and we're looking forward to 2022. We're trying to forget 2020. <laughs> so initially, I'm going to just let Jason and Tony both do an introduction for what they see 2021 finishing. What are the highlights, lowlights, that type of thing? Take it away, one of you guys. All right, I'll, I'll do it. Um, finishing, um, we still have uh, one significantly unresolved issue and one, well, several, but one major one and one, and, uh, one resolving issue. The resolving issue is the progress being made on the CPKC, uh, which got shareholder approval and is winding its way towards the regulatory review, which I think will be uh, one of the big stories of next year. Uh, I think it's going to take longer than they're saying, but I think I, I think it's very clear it's going to be approved. Uh, the unresolved issue, in my opinion, is still the TCI and potentially Elliott management uh, attack, if you would, on on the you know the the, sh- the shareholder board fight uh, and the unresolved succession issue at Canadian National, uh, which has the potential to be an existential fight for the soul of the rail industry as well as being you know, important for that company alone, of course. Jason, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the other major unresolved issues is, is going to be potential re-regulation of the rail industry because it's, it's uh, pretty adamant that we're going to at least get uh, reciprocal switching looked at uh, and then maybe even some other minor issues at the board. This is probably the most pro-shipper board in my 22 year career of being an analyst, I mean, Tony, you've been around longer than I have. Uh, I don't know if, it, if, it, if, it, if it's the most uh, pro shipper for your, but uh, for me, absolutely it is. And so I think that's gonna be, um, that's gonna be creating a lot of noise next year for investors at some point during the year. So I think the, yeah, I, was, I was looking at the wrap up the end of the year, the, the coming year, certainly the activist STB, and I agree, it's the most I've ever seen. I don't know that it's the most uh, dangerous time for railroads compared to the early aughts when Congress was more involved, when Senator Rockefeller yes. was around. Uh, it, it sort of points to that the board has, outside of M&A, where it is the king you know, uh, and decision maker, has limited recourse and can hold hearings. I think we, they will be very noisy. And we know there are two, two days of hearings on reciprocal switching in March in DC, I plan to go to it. I'll probably see you there by a beer, Jason. Um, but uh, there are also going to be hearings. They, they have unresolved issues on the Pan Am deal for CSX, uh, the Wisconsin Central uh, sale line sale to Waco from CN. Uh, you know they've got a variety. They've got the Amtrak issue in the Gulf Coast area, which is really important to the roads. There's a lot of things they're looking at. But the, in terms of what they can actually do to re-regulate, uh, is a lengthy process. So that's why I didn't pin it as a it's a 2023 highlight discussion item, but unlikely to be an actual resolution item uh, in this time. I mean, in fact, in terms of reciprocal switching, there'll be no board member left who was around when we last looked at it in, I think it was 2015, um, meaning they really have to start from scratch. Uh, so I do think that is a major issue. And also, 
in a related sense in that it is, a lot of it takes place in Washington. It's critically important to railroads and is not always um, publicly known as the labor issue. You know, we're rounding up labor negotiations for the U.S. rail industry, and we don't really know what's going on. We know that in general, labor has more hand, if you want to quote the Seinfeld kind of thing. They have more power in general these days, given labor shortages, given the strikes we saw at Deere, Kellogg, and, and others. But labor issues in the railroads, especially as they try to catch up in technological advancement with trucks, is going to be a major issue. If they can keep, uh, you know, keep out a two-man crew mandate, which could come by via Congress, via the FRA, or through labor negotiations. I mean, they're that's going to be a big issue, and we don't we won't always be on top of it since they've done a good job of keeping it all under wraps so far. And of course, we also have the dock workers who, who start negotiating in in uh, L.A. Long Beach in January, and that's never been a pleasant process. No, I mean that 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 um, I think is up uh, middle of the year on their uh, on their labor agreement. I, I think that's going to be obviously a major issue that everyone looks at. I mean, we put out a large report on the supply chain uh, with a bunch of different Cowan analysts. It's a big ahead of the curve uh, series report that we did. Um, you know, we think that at least congestion continues uh, for all of 22 in varying degrees. I think it'll be uh, more pronounced in the beginning of the year than at the end of the year, at least, uh, God, I hope so. Um, but the, the big thing for me is going to be obviously that uh, that negotiation with labor, but also how we start to recover uh, once we get past the springtime, because right now, as we sit here in December, this is the time for the ports to clear themselves up. It's usually the time when things slow down a little bit on, on uh, the uh, ocean shipment side. Uh, but remember, in 22 is going to be a little bit different. We're going to have an early Lunar New Year, if you will. And that's going to cause shippers to push some stuff into January. And then I've talked to some major retailers who told me that they're going to send their spring stuff earlier than normal this year because they just don't trust the supply chain right now. And so I think that's going to create a, a lot of potential congestion on the ports in one queue. Now, I know a lot of people are saying, hey, listen, we got $17 billion in that recent uh, uh, infrastructure bill, which is great, right? I, Tony, you and I are both on the same page. Thrilled we finally have an infrastructure bill, 10 years overdue. Wish we probably had more money, but I'll take whatever we can get. It's better than nothing. But $17 billion is going to take time to have an impact on the supply chain at the ports. It's not going to come all at once. The monies have to get appropriated. Projects have to get done. Uh, it's, it's not something I'm looking at having a positive impact, at least in the first half of the year, uh, for the port system. So I, I think it's still going to be slow sledding, if you will, on the congestion side. And uh, knock on wood here, as I sit here. Um, that it improves in the second half of the year for the rails to help out. So, so I agree with you fully. The, uh, the We needed to get the uh, infrastructure bill done in general, but it's near-term impact is negligible. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, it's like, you know, working on the foundation of your building. I mean, it's critical, but you may not see it as you enter the lobby, you know, when you go back to work. But uh, so I don't see really having any impact. But, um, you know, they're making as much noise, in, you know, to help supply chain issues uh, as they can in Washington. But it's uh, it's, you know, it's really beyond any government intervention. It's so complicated. And, for example, I agree with you. I think things have already maybe inflected positively, barring something unusual. And uh, Omicron might have been maybe we've dodged a bullet, but might have been that unusual event. But at Rail Trends, most of the people are saying we think that you know, things are beginning to turn in the right direction. Um, However, I think it's going to be past Chinese New Year uh, for that to, to, to see any hope there. And uh, in addition, if you look at some of the specific issues like chips for the automobile industry, 
you know, that may linger, you know, that, that, that's something beyond port congestion, but it certainly adds to it when the, when the auto cycle gets so out of whack. For example, the operations of Kansas City Southern and Mexico are completely imbalanced because of how they have set their plan to move power around that were the, linking the intermodal and the finished vehicle supply chains that go all the way up to Detroit, exactly what CP is buying into. Um, so I don't see any resolution, maybe incremental improvement over the course of the year, but that's going to linger. You know, there'll be impacts of this that'll linger to 2023. The hope is that after February 1 or 2, whenever the new year is, that it'll cease to be a front page issue. It'll be something that, you know, those of us at Nears talk about, but it won't be on the front page of the Times or part of the uh, late night talk shows, you know, daily joke, you know, structure. Let me now get listen, you guys uh, up one second here, if I could, uh, Jason. But railroad merger. So we have two on the table, CSX, Pan Am, and three, uh, KCSCP. What, what, what am I missing? Which one am I missing? Uh, Wisconsin Central, Watco. I mean, oh. it's a line sale, but, you know. That's yeah. a line. It's much, there, there yeah, much smaller. Yeah. Do yeah. You, other than the, the issue of mergers and the process and watching how the surfboard runs through all of this, do you, assuming they both conclude, which I think most people agree, they will happen. Yes. What will be the impact other than those types of operationally in the rail system? Is it going to make much difference? I, I think longer term it will. Um, I, I think there's a couple of things in the impact. Number one, you know, given where we're at in the industry and what happened with CN, I think we've seen the last of any class one mergers, at least in my career. Um, and, and that's just an opinion I have. Tony may have a different one. But I think it's going to be, this one's going to be an important merger because what we're seeing now um, with the supply chain issues that we just had is a real focus on the supply chain, which is a good thing, bad that we had to go through this to get that focus, but a good thing that there is the focus. And I think you're going to have some shifting um, supply chains uh, going out. People are going to look at the vulnerability that they have and in sourcing, you know, you know, 75, 85, 90% of their goods from Asia and, and look elsewhere. This could cause some sort of a nearshoring in the future. I, I think that's going to be good for um, um, CP acquiring the KCS. And I, I think you're looking at sort of a, you know, the NAFTA 2.0, if you will, uh, railroad. And I think it's going to be a benefit for them. I don't know what, so, uh, what Tony's I, opinion. I, I agree with the first part, fundamentally, last merger. I will see in retrospect, the new rules, even if they're fully undefined as to how you enhance competition, made CNs quest chaotic to begin with. We didn't really know at the time, we may have suspected, but it's now clear that uh, the STV would not permit future mergers. However, I think the promise of nearshoring is one of those uh, manana promises. I, I think it's much more anecdotal than real. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I, it doesn't mean I don't think Mexico, from a rail perspective, you know, will continue to be an enormous growth market. And Mexico should grow, first of all, their own economy should be growing quicker. They have government issues and, and whatnot. Uh, the refined products remains under threat by the government, but is still a great growth opportunity. The auto cycle, um, et cetera. In many ways, this merger is an attempt to put together Mike Haverty's dream of, of creating a railroad in Mexico that, that under a single line can extend all the way into the US and bring goods from Lazaro Cardenas into the US heartland that never was realized in, in, you know, in the past. I mean, it's still been probably the fastest growing railroad of the last decade in terms of units. And I think it could potentially with this new combination even be so, but the idea that we're delinking from Asia 
uh, even in the, if you look at the supply chain thing, is going to, I think, going to be mostly air. Uh, with in the greatest of respect, Jason, I don't really think we're going to see major manufacturing, certainly not move back to the United States. Um, and in fact, one of the issues where I could be wrong, and, and this will take, you know, well past 2023 to, to be able to assess, is uh, the electric vehicle market, where we've seen two announcements of battery plants and production in the, you know, central southern U.S. Uh, I think Toyota was one. Uh, one was in North Carolina, I believe, and one was in Kentucky. And that's terrific. But I will tell you that our NAFTA partners are uh, hopping mad about the rules within the, that uh, encourage buy American in the electric vehicle market with some of the government subsidies in that infrastructure bill because it violates USMCA. So you, you may see some pushback there. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. If that were to occur, you might actually see some auto production shift away from Mexico. Um, Mexico carries great growth prospects, in my opinion, and always has. Hunter Harrison was wrong to think it never would back in the day. Um, but it also carries significant risks. You have AMLO and the AMLO government doing, you know, sort of spot searches of refined products cars in order to disrupt that supply chain because of his support for Pemex as just one example. So uh, I, I see this deal being really important. I think it, it also fully stabilizes the industry by creating, you know, a six railroad uh, uh, group that has all which have good growth prospects. I think the fight over North-South Intermodal with Union Pacific will be tremendous one to watch. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think that we're, I don't think it will be because of production that ships out of Asia. Uh, we've seen, you know, very little. And the stuff that's made the page, the front pages of the Wall Street Journal, for example, have been things like PPE and chips, which are critically important, but are not carried on a rail car. Well, well, here's where I'll disagree. So I was listening to a podcast from one of our uh, other Cowan analysts, and he had on a supplier um, that basically sells through uh, both Amazon uh, and Wayfair. And, and that person said, you know, five, six years ago, they were 90% uh, from China. Now they're like 85% and their goal is to get that down over the next five to 10 years to 60%. Um, and, this, and, and, and this is where I think you're gonna go. Now, the question is, where does this product sourcing come from? Does it move from Thailand. China to Southeast Asia? Uh, and, and it might in, in the beginning, but then you're gonna have backups with, with Southeast Asia and Thailand. We've had issues with Vietnam, with some of the stuff moving that they just can't handle it right now. I, I think you are gonna get some nearshoring to the extent that it affects materially affects uh, a rail traffic will be the question. I think it's it's an additional positive. I don't think it's a game changer, uh, but I think it's going to help. And I, you know, look, you, you look at the chip uh, shortage that you brought up, you know, Cowan analysts are forecasting this is going to be going out until 2023. And it's also limiting, you know, some of the rails major competition from getting brand new trucks. You know, we've had multiple uh, trucking companies that we speak to are telling us they're having issues you know, not only getting, you know, uh, you know, tractors, but also getting trailing equipment, which is not even a chip issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with, with those thoughts. I, I think it's just going to be more Southeast Asia. We'll see over time, you know, what happens with the supply chain. Uh, one, one of the things just to remember, we, we forget because we have COVID fatigue, you know, having gone through our, you know, third or fourth variant now, uh, that this was not, you know, when we look at the supply chain issue, this has exposed the complexity and how, you know, just one little piece, a chip that we don't, we forgot was in automobiles has shut auto production down at various plants over the course of the year. 
this pandemic was not, you know, a, a rock in a pond whose ripples go on for a long, long time. It was a boulder in a puddle, right? So we're still seeing that, for example, you mentioned Thailand, they, you know, shut down shoe production there because of the lack of labor, which is really the ultimate problem we've seen here, is labor issues globally from, because they had another outbreak of COVID. So, I mean, I, I just, what, we will make changes out of this. What I hope is we don't have government intervention that tries to solve the problem without looking at the ongoing other ramifications. But this was a major event when you shut down production in Asia, then shut down production here, and you've had ripples back and forth. Uh, when we get through this, when we learn to live with whatever the, I hate the phrase, so forgive me, the new normal will be, we'll see how much we need to change our supply chains around this. You know, we're sick of talking about this thing. We're sick of wearing masks, you know, et cetera. Uh, I get my booster on, on, uh, on uh, Christmas Eve. So I'm, you know, I'm looking for this to be behind us, but, uh, but this was a major issue affecting this that is causing, I mean, the, the, that without the impact on the labor force, you wouldn't have 70 ships still outside in LA Long Beach. Yeah, when you, uh, Tony, you you brought up, uh, of course, the you, the the hope, or I don't know if it's say the hope that the government might pull some reins and not charge forward to to take more control. Which okay, we know that'll never happen. But we also were talking about the the surfboard having a lot of regulatory issues that they they're very activists. I think uh, Jason, you said it's the most activist board. There's a lot of things on their table that they're looking at next year, and. It's a tall order to achieve any of them, but when it comes to changing the regulation, whether you want to call it RE or D or PLUS or whatever, <laughs> do you think anything will actually, uh, what is the best uh, chance for success, if you want to call it that, uh, what is the best chance for a real systemic change that the board might do? Over what time period? Yeah. Okay, take a time. Tell me what time frame. <laughs> so, so here's my thing, and I'll let Jason know, is that the STB right now regulates three industries, three commodities carried by railroads in the United States only. And with the CPKC, we've clearly, once again, reinforcing this is a continental-wide industry. The shareholders can buy Union Pacific and sell Canadian Pacific. Shippers can source lumber in British Columbia or Georgia uh, or ports from Halifax to Prince Rupert to Lazaro Cardenas. Um, so if you look at the STB, it, it is the major country of the three country NAFTA group, but it regulates three commodities in one country. And one of those commodities, despite having a tremendous year in 2021, is essentially going away. Right. And you exclude business under contract. So in reality, their actual power to do things is limited unless you bring before them a rate case, which you won't if you're under contract or or a merger which we have the biggest one, you know, of our end of our careers here, Jason. But it, so my, my sense is, you know, when you look at, at, the, at the proposal at CN to refocus from growth to margin, uh, and the, the reaction to that proposal was to do a headcount reduction and increase their share buybacks and cut capbacks. Those are five, to the big five for Marty Oberman, the chairman of the STB, that he cannot stand. And they announced all five of them, and they basically they're worried about their own bacon, right? But but he only regulates one third of that railroad, and he only he can't he doesn't regulate even he is trying to increase his footprint and look at accessorials and uh, first and last mile and what he can what he really has his power is a spotlight, 
And one of the things he right now has the backing through an executive order that really was pretty wishy-washy regarding rails and certainly didn't single them out. He has the backing of that and he has the backing of the House T&I committee, although their chairman is retiring, which is a positive for rails. Um, there's very, you know, really, if you wanted to see change in railroads, it has to be legislative, not regulatory. And there are incrementally bad things. For example, the FRA can, under the guise of safety, regulate and mandate two-man crews. They've already stopped testing of portals, uh, inspection portals in the U.S. So there are things they can do to impede railroads' ability to, to apply technology that would be bad for the entire supply chain. But in terms of a major issue, you know, that would have to come out of Congress, in my opinion. But the way that the, the SCB can affect it is shine the spotlight on, like they did with Hunter Harrison, and then, then have hope the TNI committee takes up the work. Well, you know, I, I, I would uh, agree with Tony, and I would add that, you know, I think if uh, CN was headquartered in Atlanta, Jacksonville, or, uh, or Omaha, we might have had a little bit of a different uh, uh, type of um, a press release, right? Uh, it, was, <laughs> it would have been considered completely tone deaf here in the States, but I think being that they were in Canada, uh, they could have, uh, they, they definitely got away with something like that. So, but, um, you know, look, going forward, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues. I, I, I agree with them wholeheartedly. The FRA, which has historically been very, very pro-labor in a lot of the rulings, um, that's, that's a hurdle you have to overcome. And when you look at autonomous trucks, um, look, they're, they're on the horizon. You have, you know, two simples uh, doing their driver out tests right now. In other words, sending the truck out to deliver without anybody in it. Um, that's going to be a, a big deal, a big milestone for that industry. It doesn't mean it's co all coming in 23, but the rails have to take action now. Uh, so and too you know, simple will, will benefit CN and UP, right? They're big shareholders. Well, they're, they're shareholders. Yeah. I mean that, but look, they're shareholders. they're shareholders. Why? Because they're hedging their bets. I mean, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was both offensive and defensive as, as the investors. I agree fully. They, they would, you know, um, you know, they won't impede the progress, but they would love to see, you know, that, that it's not happen quickly, right? I mean, from, you know, net, net in their portfolio, just as we have to look at TCI net, net in their portfolio of owning both CP and CN, yes. they have to make a choice, but they have a portfolio approach. Uh, I think um, that the railroads have the technological ability right now to do autonomous trains between positive train control and say uh, Wabtex trip optimizer, they could do start and stop trains. They could run this pretty soon, quicker than trucks from their basement, like a giant HO train set. Of, of course, they, I mean, they, they could right away. There's, there's no reason other than re regulatory problems that they exactly. shouldn't be able to do this. I mean, you're already, we, look, we've had autonomous trains in this country you know, since the 60s, when you look at Disney or when you look at the, a, a lot of the airports, well, and we already have autonomous freight trains in Australia. There's no yep. reason we can't do it. And what the railroads have to do, you can't be reactive in this, this thing. You have Agreed. to be proactive. Agreed. Uh, one, comment, one comment I would make about, Tony, when you were talking about the surfboard's limited control and, and ability, which of course is true. I think what, from what I've read and heard from the chairman is that he would disagree, probably, in the sense that one area of, of railroad functionality that is uh, product agnostic is service. You know, they've got a responsibility to make sure that service is for the public good, and that is not related to any products. That yes. sounds like so that's an area but, but to actually do anything, he can hold a hearing, he can embarrass Norfolk Southern 
as he just did recently, or CSX as he's done before. Um, he can actually direct service. He can take emergency powers, but we're nowhere, nowhere, nowhere near that situation that would call for that. Uh, just, you know, we use the word crisis way too much in this country about a lot of things. Um, right now, I think the Dodgers face a pitching crisis since the Mets picked up our best starter. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's not really a crisis. It's a problem. And so I, I think the same thing, you know, I, I agree with you. He can, he, that's part of his spotlight is his service. Uh, also on accessorials and demurrage, he could talk about that. His whole idea of highlighting first and last mile, getting more information made public is something that Jason and I can both use. Those will be more information better for us. Um, but it can't really make them better at first mile. I mean, if you, uh, the idea that you expose something and therefore, you know, that's part of what PSR is about, right? Information, accountability, et cetera. You know, maybe that's a positive, but that's sort of, it, he could influence this. He can't do anything about it unless a railroad actually, actually truly goes into a crisis the way it's defined as opposed to the way we use it. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about your, both of your favorite topics and that's the finance area of the railroads. Uh, uh, they obviously have good bottom lines. They're making good money. Uh, there've been a lot of discussions about where, where are they really trying to go? Is it all to satisfy shareholders? Is it the uh, operating ratio? I know Tony, you've talked about that a lot. Um, where do you think we're headed for the railroads? How will they change the way they themselves or how should they change the way they evaluate success? So, so Marty Overman thinks the railroads are beholden to Wall Street and too focused on the shareholder, completely ignoring the fact that so are the CEOs of every commodity company that the railroads carry are entirely focused on the shareholder and that companies are focused on the shareholder. The, that is true in Archer Daniels, Midland, Foreign Motor, Amazon, um, you know, every, every company that the railroads deal with, it's really simplistic. Uh, to say that railroads are in the thrall of Wall Street and that everybody else isn't. Uh, however, that being said, uh, both in terms of, as Jason said, tone deafness and um, uh, and really growing in the future, is if you have to change the focus from margin to growth. That's why the TCI battle for CN, I, I'm calling an existential battle potentially for the soul of the rail industry. Where do they focus? At my Railtrans conference, every railroad got up and talked a good talk. They all talked about growth. They talked about stakeholder at, you know, issues beyond just shareholder issues. And in fact, if you grow, if you get more business at a reasonable price and you do this efficiently, that's good for you getting shippers happy, but it's also good for shareholders. They're not in conflict unless you do a cost reduction only strategy. PSR has been misinterpreted by the STB and others as cost reducing only. And that is sort of the first phase. And, and I'll quote Keith Creel, who's probably been the most eloquent on this. You know, they spent a few years fixing their engine and then they pivoted to growth. They've supported that pivot by creating new uh, physical opportunities, the Vancouver um, Mixing Center, tra Transload Center with Maersk, the Auto Center that are PSR dividends. They purchased railroads to help them grow. Uh, CN was pursuing that strategy when it was attacked. Uh, the railroads are talking the talk that they're focused on growth, uh, ESG, and technology. They, they have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. But if you set up those expectations beyond just what is the next quarter's operating ratio, then shareholders will hold you accountable. They'll ask Union Pacific's Ken, Kenny Rocker, who's talked about growth you know, in a year, where is the growth? Show me your pipeline. 
You know, what are you doing in technology? How are you keeping up with what the trucks are doing? I don't know, Jason, if you see it differently, but I think railroads, just to conclude, railroads were, had, were beginning to change the focus from what I would call PSR 1.0 in the beginning of 2020. If you go back to that, the January earnings calls in 2020, everybody talked about growth potential, uh, ESG, which has been a big part of this and is, you know, over half the shares are controlled by ESG themed funds now. Uh, and technology, which is going to support both of those things. What happened in, in February and especially March of 2020 changed the dialogue, right? But I think we're now getting slowly back to the dialogue that says we have to grow. We have to take our efficient company and grow. And the OR is, again, to quote Keith Creel, which is always a good thing to do. That's an outcome, not the process itself. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously investors are going to want to see these companies grow. But the big problem is you go back a decade, and UP hasn't grown its volumes really. And and so, and they were talking about growth back then. So talking yes. about growth is nothing new. Delivering upon growth would be new. So I think really over the next three to five years, it's it's a put up or shut up time for the railroads. Great. Um, and, and you're gonna have to shift to growth. Uh, Tony's a hundred percent right. And I think, you know, when, when you look at a lot of the shippers who are out there, you know, we have to get supply chain visibility. I know I've harped on this in the past, you know, but it's utterly ridiculous that we can't trace, uh, you know, movements of goods in the rail space from the moment they're picked up to the moment they're delivered, simply because you might change a carrier. Um, so th 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 this, th absolutely. But let's get let's get it done industry wide. Um, that's something that's going to you're going to need to have this to compete with the trucks. Right. At the end of the day, this is who you're going to compete with. And the rail industry, if they want to if they want to grow, they're going to have to adapt. So it's kind I agree, of I agree 100%, and I know they have talked about this before, but they did go through a period of roughly 2017 to 19 of not talking about it, in which they had coached the symbiotic relationship between the owners of the companies and the companies of the shareholders and the management was, uh, I'm going to produce X hundred million dollars of, of, of economies. I'm going to produce an operating ratio reduction of 150 basis points a year. That became the dialogue, the cult as I call it, of the operating ratio, I think had, had overtaken this. Yes, they have talked about growth before, and for brief moments, they've produced it, for example, in intermodal. I think it's absolutely, you know, that's why I, I continue to view the TCICN contest as existential here. How are the railroads going to look in five years? Will they have been able to have, have you know, walked their talk? Uh, it's important to start with the talk, and, you know, now that we're going into hopefully a post-pandemic uh, uh, a world, you know, as we as we exit the su supply chain crisis portion of this, the railroads need to grow. I mean, absolutely, this is you know existential. And frankly, if they do that, they relieve the STB and and con congressional pressure, uh, et cetera. Because at growth, you'll never see shippers uh, write a letter to Congress praising a railroad. But it, you know, if you're growing with them and your wallet share is growing with a the shipper, they're also not going to write a letter condemning you. So. So here, here seems to be the problem. The railroads for the last three, four years have tried to rationalize everything. So crew uh, labor reduction, uh, track and line reduction, you name it, they've reduced all their assets and now they want to grow. So doesn't that create a longer timeline? How do you grow when you've kind of shrunk all of your resources and then you want to somehow grow is... Uh, the is technology and uh, automated service part of that 
well, a major part of the solution? Or? It's, it's going to have to be part of it, Dennis. I mean, you know, you know, because right now hiring is tough no matter what industry you're in, if you have yeah, to right. go back and hire more people. But the thing we have to go back to is, I mean, I mean you know, look at the people involved. When you, when you look at the investors in the rail industry and you think about their time horizon for their investment, I mean, at most three to five years, mo, you know, probably the majority are around a year investment, right? When you look upon how a shipper looks at things or how a railroad should look at a long-term investment, you're talking decades, right? So, so th there's, there's a little bit of a, you know, where are you going to put your dollars at for the railroad industry in terms of your biggest bang for your buck? So to some extent, I understand where the STB is coming from. Uh, but, you know, longer term, this is where the rail industry has to realize, you, you, you know, you just can't shrink the industry. You have to grow it. To grow it, like I said, we need to embrace the technology. I'm hoping the FRA largely stays out of our way because I think that's going to help the industry. And I'm hoping we, we as an industry, can somehow work together uh, to formulate products that are better, not only for the railroads themselves, but, you know, for the, their for the large amount of their customers that they have, which is what is going to be needed to compete longer term. So I agree with everything you just said. Um, I would say if you look back at uh, two thoughts, one is the idea that they've shrunk all this, uh, like all, uh, with, with all respect, Dennis is sort of a cliche I hear a lot. Um, and there's an element of truth in a lot of these things. They, you know, they certainly did under the PSR 1.0. They cut headcount, they cut assets, but they also created capacity. That's what they would argue is you move to PSR 2.0 or what CN is calling DSR, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it's there are capacity dividends. And the best example, I, uh, ones I mentioned before, uh, CP in the British Columbia creating physical terminals for joint work with Maersk or with the auto industry that came out of the yards that, that they had, had repurposed. So, uh, you know, I, I really view the process. If you follow the Canadian example, uh, they went through a cost cutting and shrinking under Jim Foote as CMO, CN reduced about 20% of their intermodal footprint under the original, which was called scheduled railroading under Hunter Harrison. Since then, it's been the fastest growing intermodal player. Um, so, you know, in effect, what they, they you know, the, the idea that they might have cut to, to, fine that they there's not enough resiliency or surplus is uh, throughout the supply chain an issue if we move uh from a just in time to as they're now calling it a just in case this is another like nearshoring one of the themes you hear about that's extremely pro-rail uh that gives a lot of opportunity i i think the railroads um, in most cases have the capacity and if you apply technology as jason just said they have significant capacity where they have shortages right now is labor but find me an industry that doesn't. And just to give, not to give the railroads a pass, but go back to March uh, and April, 2020. And when we had no idea what was going on, everybody, you know, basically reduced labor. And this is true of warehouses, shippers, you know, schools, um, et cetera. And we had no idea. And now they're finding as everybody else is that the people that usually come back might have rethought that opportunity. Um, and this is true in warehouses, shippers, ports, steamship lines, if they could get off the ship and they're not stuck. Um, so, you know, I, again, go back. This was an existential, I hate the phrase, I've used it three times. This was a hopefully once in a lifetime, once not in a lifetime, but in a, you know, in a century moment. You know, we, we have to look back to 1918 to have a comparison. Uh, and, and that was, you know, when we had a world war at the same time, right? We recovered from that. Uh, and practices changed, but not radically. We still had, you know, same kinds of government and et cetera. Of course, we had a second world war, but let's let's drop that historical analogy there. 
Uh, I, I, I'm just saying, I think the railroads have the capacity. They have to change their mindset. There is some truth to the idea that PSR works when the sun is shining. And then when something happens, you know, it all is there to fit perfectly. And then there's an unplanned disruption. And these days there's more. And we look at Kentucky and the unfortunate, you know, thing we just saw. There are more unplanned events than we seemingly ever have had. Uh, so there is a need throughout the supply chain to, to add in some surplus. Uh, and, and overall, railroads have to adjust to that, too. But if everybody does that and inventory is carried a little bit deeper after we recover, it's still very low. That's good for railroads. You know, that's that's not a, a pro truck. That's pro rail. So a, co a couple of things on that, Dennis. Um, number one, I, I think what some people miss sometimes is just like anything else, PSR has a life cycle. And, and, yes. and so what you always see is at some point they, they cut too much growth returns. They're not really fully prepared because remember the rails have vast networks and, and you can get your planning right for, for 2% growth, but be completely off on your regions, you can have 4% growth in one region and flatten the other. Next thing you know, you're understaffed in your North region of 4% growth and you're, uh, and you're, you're overstaffed in your Southern region at zero. So it, there creates a problem right there. Um, but, but again, it, it, it takes time. And, and Tony talked about inventories. I think that's gonna be an important thing. We just wrote about it in our big piece that I mentioned before. Um, you know, a proprietary survey showed that nearly 50% of shippers right now are planning to hold more inventory than they did before that goes into that sort of just in case if you will i'm not saying you know they're gonna that, that it's going to be widespread beyond that but if 50 percent of the shippers are starting to do it that's going to obviously be positive for rail volumes in the future so uh just wanted to follow up on that point i'm agreeing with jason here too uh if you look, I, I mentioned Jim Foote at CN and how they shrunk and then they become the fastest growing interval player over a decade. If you look at just the past year, which is a tough, very tough year to, you know, to make a comparison about CSX had two years going into the pandemic of shrinking on purpose their intermodal franchise. They repurposed the North Baltimore Yard. They were basically cut about, I don't know, 15 to 20% of their business. They were shrinking, the operating ratio was improving. It was a classic Marty Oberman. They're shrinking the prosperity. You know, that's what they're doing. Well, once they got to the bottom, they began to turn the engine around and they're the only intermodal company uh, railroad to have show intermodal growth in the second half of this year, this past year. So I don't know if that's, you know, it's all too little to make the judgment, but they are, right now on their plan of, of now having a new repurposed intermodal franchise that they want to grow for the next decade. You know, when, when you, and when you hear from shippers, Tony, that, that they get much better marks on handling uh, the intermodal business that Norfolk Southern has in the past, let's call it 10 months. Yeah, which is a complete reversal of the his 21st century trend. It's something Norfolk uh, and their new succession you know, needs to address because they really should be the premier intermodal franchise in the East because of the capital they put into it over the past 20 years of creating their corridors. And I, I, one of the issues that we didn't discuss, and I know we're, we don't have you know, all day here, is that I thought we would see resolved in 2021, and we have not fully resolved it, is succession. Uh, Norfolk Southern made their big announcement. Uh, we now know the succession plan at Kansas City Southern is to be part of CP, but that still leaves, and Katie Farmer came on board in the beginning of the year. We still have three major railroads without an assured successor. Uh, it's not quite as unstable as if we had CP and Keith Creel, you know, wandering free out there to terrify everybody with activist investors, but you still have a CSX and Union Pacific and, of course, CN 
of having unresolved succession issues. And that's something that the industry needs to address. Uh, that's also probably likely partially a pandemic issue. We would have all been out on the road at NEARS and at NARS and seeing other meetings and we've been back together, but you know, we would have begun to see who are the railroads positioning uh, as their next you know, uh, super leader. And uh, we have not seen that in at least three carriers. So we've got issues um, to resolve there. You indicated we are getting up to the time uh, where we'll have to cut off, but uh, one area of, we, we've talked about class ones up to this point. I wanna throw in here before we leave uh, about short lines, what role the short line, there, there have been some changes going on in there and, and they do play an important role. Uh, where do you see that coming up in, in the next year or two? The short lines are gonna be ever more important. Uh, they are, they, they like to call themselves, the, I can't I think it was Mike Miller of Genesee, the shock absorber between the, the shipper and the class one under a PSR system, under a pre-blocking system. Uh, they are, are uh, I think, you know, incredibly important. Uh, they remain incredibly valuable to infrastructure investors. And we just had a deal announcement in the last week. Uh, it's being challenged in court by an old uh, friend of the industry who, who continues to uh, stir things up. Uh, but uh, in general, the value of short line properties is going to go up and the importance within the supply chain is going to go up. And things like Rail Pulse and getting that information out there that Jason talked about is a way of, of further cementing their role in the supply chain. I think, you know, I run a panel at my conference of short line uh, chief commercial officers and the entrepreneurial spirit and the IQ of, of, the, of the, the thought leaders behind Anacostia, Genesee and Wyoming, Watco. R.J. Corman, um, et cetera, are, you know, all these guys could be chief commercial officers at the class ones and the class ones would learn more by listening and working more carefully with them because they're out there doing deals. They're out there, you know, growing. And in fact, through the pandemic, they've outgrown on a carload basis, the class ones significantly. So I think that trend is going to continue and they're going to be more important when we have this call next year. Wholeheartedly agree with everything Tony just said. And you know, for the class ones that may be listening to this, just want to emphasize, work closer with those short line partners of yours. I mean, I mean, that's where it's going to be in, in terms of helping you grow finally. I mean, I, Tony and I both brought up Rail Pulse. That's going to be extremely important, whether it's Rail Pulse that gets it done or, or something else under another name. It's going to be something that you have to do with your short line partners to get this industry to where it needs to be to fully compete with trucks. Well, very well said, everybody. Appreciate you guys taking time for all the enlightenment for our NEARS listeners. And of course, I'm going to wish you both a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, a Happy New Year as we head in. And uh, don't forget, for all of our listeners, NEARS in April in Baltimore, you'll be able to see the Tony and Jason show in person, not just on a podcast. 